What have we done? We'd let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Harioth, opposite Baal Zephron. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites took up, looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and die in the desert. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you this day. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch, it out, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and through his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry ground. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from these Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea 
and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on the left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. This is the reading of God's word. Yes? Yes. All right, now it's a good morning. Prior to that, it was not a good morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Brennan. I'm delighted to be bringing the word to you today. Uh, as John said, we're going through chapter... Actually, we're flying over chapters uh, 13 through 15. Um, but if we were read them all the way through, then we'd have a chance to do that maybe twice, and then everyone would have to go home. So I'm going to give you the overview of that, um, and I'm going to pray before we dive into God's word. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and the way you reveal yourself through it to us. We pray you open it to our hearts and we pray you open our hearts to what you have to say today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, this is where we're at. We're continuing to crack through Exodus at this cracking pace. Um, I invite you to read over these chapters in greater detail yourself in your own readings. In fact, if you stay a couple of chapters ahead, you'll You'll know the context of what we're, uh, we're talking about each week. That would be the ideal way to do it. Um, and I thought I'd have to include that picture somewhere. Um, if you ask random people on the street, just, just uh, folks who you run into, who their favourite character from the Old Testament is, or who they know from the Old Testament, usually they will say Jesus. Um, but after you explain the difference between the Old and the New Testament, they'll probably say Moses. He's the most widely recognised figure in the Old Testament, and... Um, if you ask them to name something Moses did, most of the time they will say he parted the Red Sea. It's the single most spectacular miracle described in the Bible. Not the greatest uh, act of God, you have to give that to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but part of the beauty of that is how subtle God was about it. Jesus returned to life in a tomb uh, with no witnesses in the tomb while it was happening, and no one really understood what had happened until an angel explained it to people and the risen Lord was tapping people on the shoulder and um, sneaking up on them to announce his uh, resurrection. That was anything but a spectacle. But this parting of the sea, there's just nothing that's been done on that scale before in Scripture and nothing really since. And so even though we live in a, uh, a less biblically literate Australia than ever before, most people have a pretty strong mental image of the idea of the parting of the Red Sea. Many are informed by this kind of picture from the uh, 1956 film, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston as Moses, and I believe the voice of God. So, double billing. Good for him. Um, younger viewers may know it from the 1998 DreamWorks film, Prince of Egypt, starring the voice of Val Kilmer. Um, or if they're unfortunate, they may remember it from 2014's wheezing attempt at reviving the big-budget Bible flick genre, uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, a criminal waste of both the source material and Christian Bale. Um, 
But there's a lot to talk about around this event, and the key to it is that the ancient world had not completely forgotten about God, but they needed to be reminded. The Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Near Eastern tribes and the kingdoms, they were all descended from the same cluster of humanity, and that cluster understood that there was a God who made the world. He spared his chosen, he drowned the wicked. They knew about that God. But they had blurred cultural memories about the details. If he was one of many gods or God of a particular people. Um, and God arranges this event in which the Israelites refer to as the crossing of the Red Sea. But what the Egyptians must have thought of as the drowning of the army of Egypt. He arranges this event to show the whole world something unbelievably powerful which they cannot deny and that proves that he is God. So the Israelites are leaving Egypt. This in chapter 13, if you're um, going to read through this at home as well. But as they're leaving, they do so with such haste that they can't complete the dough they're using to make their bread to travel. This begins the, the tradition, the, the feast of the, the unleavened bread, um, in which the Israelites celebrate year after year, a reminder of their history, how God delivered them from Egypt and how they had to leave with such haste they couldn't add yeast to their bread. And then in chapter 13, God makes an additional demand of Moses, which Moses relays to the people. It's sort of summed up in these three verses here. Chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on an oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now to modern ears, this is kind of upsetting to hear. The idea that animals are being killed for no good reason doesn't have much modern appeal. But the truth is these animals are dying for a reason after all. God isn't just freeing a bunch of slaves. He's taking 12 tribes of former slaves and welding them together into a nation that's meant to represent him to the world. And nations are only as well-defined as their traditions. Traditions are how one generation communicates its values and its history to the next. Australians celebrate Anzac Day not because we expect that the ghosts of the Anzacs will be soothed by our tribute, but to reinforce to the following generations our national values of heroic sacrifice, of mateship, and of courage. And the world used to look forward to the Olympic Games because of its... Uh, it communicated a sort of an international value that all the nations of the world can indeed come together and, and do at least something in peace. And perhaps the nations of the world can come together in peace more often. And the Olympics are beginning to, beginning to feel uh, sort of neglected and irrelevant to people, say, in my generation, because for the internet generation, the express international shipping generation, a worldwide community is sort of a foregone conclusion. And reminders of it doesn't really do much for us. But here God is instantiating an idea in this fledgling nation of Israel. There have never been a nation like this before. The idea that their lives are not their own. They've been delivered by a God to whom they owe their lives. In these verses, they explain that when the children ask in future generations, what does this sacrifice mean? They'll explain that God led us out of Egypt, and when Pharaoh refused to let us go, God killed all the firstborn people and animals in Egypt except those he spared because of his covenant with them and their obedience. It's a reminder of that event, and so they recreate it in this way to remember it. But Christians, with the benefit of hindsight and 
and knowing the rest of Scripture, we can see that God was installing also an expectation of something bigger still. The whole system of sacrifice was a a cultural teaching program showing the Israelites that they needed a savior. They would redeem the, the firstborn animals as a reminder that they, humans, needed to be redeemed themselves. They'd redeem their firstborn sons kind of as a representative of the family. Thus, all Israel's debt to God is parceled out to the families individually, and then each family's need for redemption is sort of focused on the firstborn son in that family, the one who who carries the idea that that family will survive for another generation and, in that sense, live forever. The son's burden of redemption is transposed to a symbolic substitute, a lamb, and the lamb is given to the priests for sacrifice. But once a year, the the high priest, and the high priest alone, performs the Day of Atonement sacrifice, where he alone is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and make an offering for the nation. So the symbols all seem to be driving things to a single point. All the families of Israel, to all the firstborn sons of Israel, to all the priests, and then from all the priests to the high priests. And all the high priests across time carrying on that tradition. It stacks up like a pyramid waiting for its final level to cap it off. And Jesus, of course, is the one who completes that tradition. He's the one all the high priests were offloading that spiritual burden to when they performed those sacrifices, even if they didn't quite know that. They knew they were awaiting a Messiah who would do something. They didn't quite know what it would look like. And God was building into Israel's culture a base level over thousands of years that would come to expect this. And so when Jesus would come, in retrospect, it should all be so obvious, as it seems to be for us. Now, this is a a neat little map showing a, a good approximation of Israel's flight from Egypt. You'll notice when they leave the... uh, center of the, the Egyptian power. They don't go exactly straight into Israel. See, future Israel's also up the top there. Um, if you wanted to cut right through Philistine territory, you could go pretty much straight to the Promised Land, but that's not the way that God leads them. Um, why? Well, there's two reasons, and they're explained to us. Um, one is that God is establishing something with this, this conflict with the, uh, with the Egyptians, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. But the other is... Spoken in, this, in chapter 13, verse 17, God says that if they, if they face war, if the Israelites face war at this point, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. They may be afraid and flee. Because these Israelites are not just they're not soldiers as such, they are generational slaves. They've been slaves for 400 years. They're not warriors. They leave Egypt with a dream that they will be warriors taking the Holy Land. In fact, the passage says they leave ready for battle. But it says that immediately after God says, if they face battle, they're going to flee. And we see later on in the passage that as soon as they face battle, they're getting prepared to flee. And though they're required to fight for their survival in their journey through the the wilderness on the way to the Holy Land, they're not quite there yet. They are not up to the task. And God knows this and chooses to accommodate them. And so instead of that uh, horde of Israelite former slaves smashing face first into the Philistines, Uh, They cross what we now call the Sinai Peninsula, across about 200 kilometers eastward, and then they hook down to the shore of the Red Sea instead of going around it. And Pharaoh sees this, and as God uh, wanted him to, thinks that they are trapped, that they are wandering around aimlessly in the desert. 
And that was God's intention, and now God will do the impossible. And it's kind of a hard scene to imagine, because there's maybe about two million people in this horde at a low estimate, two million or so Israelites. What does two million people look like? I don't know. I can't quite picture that. It's a lot of stadiums stacked together. And all enough, enough, enough livestock for all of those people to be traveling with together to support their families. And they are not a trained army. They're out there exposed in the wilderness. Um, they're just groups of families. They're former slaves. So they're incredibly vulnerable, even though they're a huge mass. But God's presence is with them in the form of this pillar of, of fire at nighttime and cloud at day. But even that, that's a beacon they've been following, not a weapon of war. That They can't sort of throw that at the Egyptians as they come. And when Pharaoh's army comes chasing them, the worst seems to be happening. They, Israelites outnumber the Egyptians many, many times over, but they are not warriors and they can't fight chariots. They might as well be trying to fight Apache helicopters because chariots were basically the, the final word in ancient war. And um, as an interesting side note, it says in the NIV, it talks about Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and then his horsemen and his troops. It's likely that the horsemen are the, the guys in the chariot driving the horse, the charioteers. The word can mean charioteers too. And the troops are the guys standing in the back of the chariot, poking at people with spears or shooting with the bow. Because as far as we can tell, uh, archaeologically, horses just weren't big enough for people to ride back then which is an interesting thought. They had hundreds of years of selective breeding, like was done with dogs, to get all the various sizes of dogs to get horses quite that big. Um, but they could pull chariots, and that's what they did. And once people started riding horses, chariots pretty much disappeared. More trouble than they're worth. But the chariots, they hunt down the Israelites, the former slaves, and they immediately despair. As God said, they would change their mind and want to return to Egypt. Jews, of course, are famous as the inventors of sarcasm. Oh, I see, you brought us out here to die because there weren't enough graves in Egypt. Egypt has tons of graves. They have like world-famous giant pyramid graves. That's the joke. If anyone has enough graves to accommodate them, it's Egypt. But Moses answers for them. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And this is a very uncommon thing for God to really uh, offer to the Israelites through history there. Israel's involved in dozens of wars in their story, many of which they are outmatched in numbers and in technology. God's command is almost always, you just send out your inferior force, either the small handful of warriors I've instructed you to pick, or you just go out there, despite the fact they have chariots that you think could wipe you out, and I will deliver the battle into your hand. But this is the first time, as he's liberating them and giving them a spirit to fight, that, and God decides he's going to fight them all himself. He'll take care of it for them. They need only watch and be astonished and know that they have a God who will fight for them. And then, up to Exodus 14, verses 19 to 20, we read this. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army and withdrew and went behind them, or withdrew and went behind them, the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Interesting that they're called Israel's army here, this pack of terrified, uh, ragged slaves who had never fought a battle in their life, who just walked 200 kilometers. 
But it's this very frailty that God is choosing to protect. And the angel of God here, the, the glorious presence that Moses is certainly aware of, but as far as we can tell, Israel is not. Moves behind them and the pillar moves with him as a, a kind of a physical train of his glory. The pillar interposes itself between the two groups and changes function from being a, uh, a beacon to follow and becomes a barrier, a defensive barrier, so that the Israelites are not attacked in the night. Now, this may remind you the way that it, it shines light on the Israelites and darkness is spread on the Egyptians of the, the plague of darkness that was left on the Egyptians in previous chapters. It also points to something else, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on the dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. This is the most spectacular miracle in the Bible. The wind blows as if the breath of God and the sea parts. And there is, of course, no wind that can split the sea that would not also blast the Israelites to pieces. The wind is a sign that the Spirit of God is moving. And the sea obligingly steps to the side, recognizing its creator. Now, the sea we know is a, a place of dark fear in the ancient religions in that place in the world. No one can know its depth. Sometimes it washes up giant strange monsters like squids and whales you don't usually see. Sometimes men fall into the sea and they never come out. And there were no transatlantic cruises or deep sea dives to dispel some of that mystery. And so the sea tend to be seen as a place of darkness and fear. There were boats, but you could use them to travel around the coast or from island to island, but you absolutely would not go so far as to lose sight of land. You might be sailing forever or sail off the end of the earth. The sea was a chaos in which the world, the dry land, was cradled. But here, before the eyes of the Israelites and the Egyptians, God shows that he is not only the God of a particular people, but he is the God who tells the sea this far and no further. This God hurls plagues. This is some of the Egyptians already knew. But cursing a nation with strange and fearsome punishments was not something that was beyond the imagination of the Egyptian people. They were ready to accept that in some part. But when the sea parts for the departing slaves, God suddenly moves into a category of power the Egyptians didn't really place their own gods in. That's something they hadn't seen before and didn't really expect at all. It's a mythic power, the kind of power you see in creation. And it's happening in front of their eyes. See, the practical worship lives of Egyptians honored a number of gods that were given different domains over nature. You had Sobek, the god of the Nile, and Anubis, god of the dead. Ra, the king of the gods, primarily thought of as the sun god. But the Egyptian creation story is very old because they have some kind of cultural memory of being children of actually creation. And it starts with just one god for them. They called him Atum. A god who looked out on a world covered in water, formless and void, and worked upon it with his power to make creation. They know that, and despite the multiple gods that they worship at this time, they know there is really only one god who created the world. And this really looks like he's involved. And now add to it one more thing, something I picked up on this time reading through the passage 
um, which I've missed a bunch of times before, which is an amazing thing you can do with Scripture, continually read it and keep getting new insights. God's just done two great miracles here. First, he's, put, he's uh, separated light from darkness. He put light on one side and darkness on the other so the Egyptians can see what they're doing through the night and the, uh, and the Israelites can see what they're doing through the night and the Egyptians can't. And then he separates the water so the Israelites can pass through. Now, if that reminds you of something, that's not an errant thought. This is a suspicious repetition of the first two days in the creation story. On day one, God separates the light from the dark. He saw the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Day two, God made a vault and separated the waters from the waters. Dividing light from dark and waters from waters. Now at this stage, Moses hasn't written Genesis yet. This is a creation story that all the Israelites know, which they have passed on from their parents to their children over hundreds of years, and which the Egyptians, having lived with them for hundreds of years, probably also know, at least in part. And so in this spectacular event, God affirms his power over creation. He reminds the world there is no God comparable to his powers, which are the powers that created the world, and also that he works in defense of the Israelite people and in a manner that is undeniably similar to the way that the stories that come from those people describe him. And now, the Egyptians know that he is the Lord. And the rest of the story goes as we know. The Israelites walk maybe four hours in between the walls of water. The Egyptians follow them into that corridor. And then, once the Israelites are safely on the other side, God commands Moses to stretch out his hand again. And the waters collapse over the chariots. And they die at the bottom of the sea. Chapter 15 is a celebration of the now truly free Israelites. They spontaneously compose a song to remember the event. It's a song they would continue to sing and still do in some times and some places, I understand, in a certain adaptation. There's a handful of hymns that are adapted from this passage, though I'm not sure we've got them in our rotation here. Um, the celebration of destruction is a little shocking to us. For as much as we are on God's side, thousands of years removed from the event, we have about as much in common with the ancient Egyptians as we do the ancient Jews ourselves. For the Israelites, this was a great victory, a birth of their nation. They had every reason to celebrate. For the Egyptians, for maybe the handful of those who were too afraid to go into the sea and therefore weren't killed, who took this tale back to Egypt and allowed it to spread to the rest of the world, for them, this was a stark full stop on the darkest tragedy that they could imagine. For them, Exodus as a story would have been very different indeed. A story about the arrogance of a powerful king who represents his nation and a lowly prophet who leads the slaves of that nation. And then a tragic failure of that king to have the wisdom to accept that he was not the final power in that conflict. He fights against God and loses gut-wrenchingly and catastrophically for himself and everyone around him. And modern readers can't help but feel kind of both sides of that story. So then the question from this passage must become this. Why did God do all this? He could have airlifted his people to safety with angels. He could have allowed Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh wanted to do initially, which was be a coward, not follow through on his conviction that he was right and had the, the divine right to keep these slaves. 
and simply let the Israelites go. God might have done this any way he wanted to, but he chose to escalate the conflict to a point where he would destroy the Egyptian army. So why do this? Well, he tells us, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. Glory here isn't an abstract sense of greatness. In this concept, it's, it's like divine credibility. Egypt was in the grip of a series of kings who considered themselves to be gods. That's the, the lie that God was dispelling by proving that he was the Lord. The idea that gods could be uh, kings was something that was a little new in the region at the time. Typically, tribes and even nations would fight, and then the outcome of that battle would be seen as the gods having victory over one or the other. In some sense, the armies were the weapons the gods used to fight. That's the way it was seen. And the Egyptians took it one step further. They twisted the idea that gods and kings could be the same. They could be together. And so Pharaoh was considered a god in his own right when he went to battle. It was his victory. He gained the glory. He had conquered the enemy gods. And if the people of Egypt are going to have any chance to understand how badly lost they are, God has to provide them with the most obvious sign possible, a showdown between two armies on behalf of two gods. Pharaoh thinks he is going to be fighting against cowering slaves, but he ends up in a fist fight against the supernatural power that spun the world into motion. He doesn't stand a chance. And Israel's God proves that he doesn't need an army to destroy his enemies to gain glory. Now, we don't get to know how many Egyptians came to some strong sense of humility because of this, or how many gained a recognition that they are beholden to the creator of the world. We don't get to know that. I hope there were many of them, but... Any who didn't, from this point on, they could not possibly say they had no way to know. Because they knew. But God doesn't do this today. The Bible says that there will be a time when Jesus returns in power and there will be a showdown uh, of armies for the final time. But for now, God has chosen to stop revealing himself through supernatural displays of military glory. The world has seldom more desperately needed to know that he is the Lord. But this, this divine um, display of credibility through the destruction of enemy armies, that's no longer, doesn't mean the same thing now as it did then. People can read this story about how God hurled both horse and rider into the sea. And their conclusion will often be, why did the horses have to die? The horses did nothing wrong. God's plan to be known in the world today is not through destructive power. It's through love. Jesus said this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And our capacity to love one another is, in its way, it's the distinctly, divinely inspired, modern equivalent of the, the echoes of that act that happened in Exodus. It's the modern equivalent of the destruction of the, of the Egyptian army. In fact, the reason we live in a world now in which the principle most associated with God is love, and the thing that gives our God the most glory, the most divine credibility, is love, is 
because Jesus came in a radical act of love when people expected a conqueror. And they wanted him so badly to come and throw the Romans, both charioteer and horse, into the sea. But the conquering of the Roman army and their Caesar was not what Jesus had in mind. Even though Caesar was another king with a cult of divinity and an obsession with war glory, Jesus chooses to conquer sin and death. It's our sin that has been thrown into the depths of the sea and death that has been finally condemned to a destruction that will shock the world. And it's that conquest, the story we now call the gospel, that changed the world into one where war and destruction are no longer thought of so much as glorious, but as a senseless, sometimes necessary evil. And where God's closeness is identified not with military force, but with the love with which his people treat one another. He showed Egypt he was God by pouring out his wrath in great abundance. And he showed us he is God when he sent his son to pour out his blood for the sins of many. And so now it falls to us to show the world that he is God by pouring out our love for his children as he desires us to do. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing creator. You spoke the world into being. You gave man and woman breath. You cleansed the world in floodwaters. You parted the Red Sea. And greatest of all, Lord, you sent your son to die, to take away the sins of the world. And we praise you for this. And we ask now as we reflect on your greatness and as we see how desperately the world needs to know you, Lord, that you help us to make you known. Guide us in our thoughts and actions so we might love one another in a way that shows the world who you are and give us the courage to tell the people in our lives about the God who split the seas and who wants a relationship personally with them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.